Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Ticket prices tend to drop right before games start, and because GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, they're able to show you the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. If you're going to be in Detroit for New Year's Eve, for example, and you're walking around, you figure, hey, I want to go see the Red Wings play the San Jose Sharks. You can do that. Just download the GameTime app. It's an easy two-tap checkout. You'll be in the arena, ringing in the new year with the Red Wings game. Let's just call it a game. The GameTime app is simple, quick, and easy to navigate. Download the GameTime app in Google Play or the App Store and score last-minute deals on tickets up to 60% off. weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. And the Red Wings have once again chipped into their margin of defeat. They, they're making slight progress game by game in, in margin of defeat. Yeah, I mean, this was actually a really solid week for the Wings. They only added two more goals to their goal differential. So, you know, I think that's a significant progress when you look back at the last couple of weeks to only go down minus two for the week is a, is a win. Certainly helps to have only played the one game after yeah, Monday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know what? At game. this point, the Red Wings will have to take what they can get. Yeah, and it was a competitive game. I mean, it was a relatively, you know, close game for, you know, from the process standpoint, not really on the scoreboard for large chunks of it. But again, another another step in the right direction. Yeah, it was interesting because I think kind of the, the story of the game – by the end of it became, you know, a, a really strong finish from Larkin, who I didn't think that top line was really all that good for most of the game, but they, they certainly turned it on when the when the time came and they, they cut the lead in. Larkin gets a, a goal at six on four uh, to make it four to three late, and then obviously the Red Wings take a penalty on a on a too many men that basically kills the rally and, and allows the Penguins to score an empty netter. They win at 5-3. I personally was hoping to see Evgeny Malkin's 400th goal last night. Uh, that did not happen. Yeah, I mean, I thought a lot of people, you know, pregame, I actually saw a couple of people tweet and go, well, Malkin's at 398 right now, so you can pretty much count on him to do that. And he was actually dominant, I thought, for the Penguins for the most part. He factored in on their first, uh, what was it, their first three goals that they scored, Malkin had points on. Um, I mean, he was all over the ice. It's a, it's a familiar sight for Wings fans who remember having to go up against him in the Cup Finals in back-to-back years in 08 and 09, but... Yeah, I mean, the the story of the game was really not enough in the first couple of periods until the Wings got down 4-1 after they gave up that uh, early goal at the start of the third period. And then they were able to chip in a couple of nice goals. They got a good goal from Philip Ronick. They got a good goal on a uh, early goalie pull from Blasio where Larkin scores on a long wrist shot. But again, too little, too late. And then, you know, some of it you have to wonder if that late penalty is a little bit of, you know, Comrie getting used to so Eric Comrie kind of came in with about 10 minutes to go in the game simply because the wings were down 4-1 and Blaschel said might as well uh, get him some minutes because it wasn't like there was an injury to Bernier it wasn't right after a goal um, and so maybe a little bit of the, the the penalty there is just Comrie not 
or kind of hedging. He hasn't really been in NHL game action in a while, and so he kind of hedged. Wings put a guy on, over the boards, and then Athens he played the puck, and they get too many men. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was a better effort, similar to the Washington game. The score doesn't really reflect, um, you know, how tight the game was, if you will. But, again, just not enough at the right times. I'm pretty sure that the the penalty wasn't the guy changing for Comrie. That was just other players changing. Yeah, I think they just called it. I think there was a big debate between whether it should be a legal substitution, which isn't technically a penalty, but you blow the play dead, where if the puck kind of gets in that area but no one really plays it, they could blow it. But it was Athanasiu who played it, but he's not the one that came on. But I think the refs just went ahead and called it too many men on the ice. It was a really weird situation there. Yeah, because I asked afterward if it was like a mental lapse or what had happened, and Blashill basically was like, "Well, it wasn't. It wasn't the situation with the goalie pull, although they were hoping to to make that switch when the puck was more uh, possessed in the offensive zone." But I think there was like a cross zone pass that got picked off or something. Red Wings got a little overzealous, and and that ultimately killed their their rally. I, I did think it was probably a good thing though to see that level of fight, especially you know Larkin really took over that game. I thought uh, our friends over at the the Winged Wheel Pod had a funny tweet about with the Danny DeVito, and then I started blasting GIF, which I thought was uh, <laughs> it was pretty 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 on on point for how Larkin uh, approached that game. Yeah, I mean his final couple of minutes was really exciting. He was able to get a goal, put three shots on net. Um, he he had a couple of good uh, pickpockets. One where he picked off a Malkin pass and almost was able to score another goal to really bring that game back together. But you know, I think to your earlier point, I don't think that top line was particularly good when you evaluate the entirety of the game. Uh, they saw about eight minutes of that Malkin line with Rust and Gensel, which has been one of the top lines in the NHL. And I thought the Malkin line actually got the better of Larkin's line for most of the game up until that very last couple of minutes when the Wings made a huge push and largely on Larkin's back. But yeah, I mean, you know, you still have to take the good from if you're a Wings fan, and it's a little bit of what Blashill's been doing uh, over the course of this 11-game losing streak. He's trying to find the highlights, the things that show the positives that the team's doing. And I thought, if, hey, if you're going to pull anything from this game, you're going to pull those last couple of minutes and say, hey, look how hard you pushed, look at the speed you played with. That's the way you really want to play 60 minutes. Yeah, you know, I, I definitely think that going up against Malkin was a contributing factor for for, for that line and. I also thought Philip Zadina played okay. I don't know if what the consensus was on that. I, I thought especially early he was, as usual, uh, looking pretty dangerous. Yeah, I mean, he was one of the Wings' best players from 5-on-5 five five stats perspective. Uh, you know, for the game, the Wings finished on the positive side from a Corsi 4%. Just looking at quantity of shots, they were at about 54%. From a quality perspective, they were actually uh, sub-50%. They were closer to, to 45%. Per, um, and that's using the evolving wild model. But from a, for Philip Zadina, he was, uh, at 50-ish, 55%, um, expected goals for and 55% from a Corsi 4 perspective. I thought he looked really good. And, you know, towards the end of the game, he, uh, and by end of the game, I mean third period, he did get rewarded with a couple of shifts up with Athanasiu and Philpola, although as the game got tight towards the end, he didn't really get any more shifts, uh, the rest of the way. And so, Again, positive, small steps forward for Zadina. Um, I still think he continues to look like one of the more dangerous forwards when he's on the ice. And I think the Athanasiu and Filippola line with him did have a couple of good chances when they uh, got a chance there in the third period. My thing with that right now is I, I understand that, you know, Fabry on the first line, he's probably the winger who most deserves to be there. But I think 
if if you just take it out of like the hierarchy context of first line, second line, the chemistry with Fabry, Philplath, and ACU was really good. Why not just leave that together and, and put Zadina up? Yeah, I mean, it's the same discussion we had at the beginning of the year with the Mantha, Larkin, Bertuzzi line. Like, you didn't really want to break up that line because that line was playing so well and they had so much chemistry going. Um, in, in that scenario, I was a proponent of breaking up the line solely because you needed other people who could inject some offense. But that was pre-Fabry, who's, you know, been a sensation for the Wings, honestly, since they've uh, acquired him. And now with Fabry on that second line, you know, in that scenario, you didn't have to break it up. Mantha goes out. That's fine. Elevate Fabry if you want. But really the line that has been clicking is that Fabry, Fopola, Athanasio line. Maybe leave them together and see if Zadina can be that that difference maker when he goes up to the top line. You know, I, I, I'm not sure what the, the rationale is at this point to kind of avoid that. Um, Zadina's played, you know, several games now. He hasn't looked out of position He's continued to be a dangerous uh, player when he's on the ice. The team continues to generate more chances in their favor relative to when he's off the ice. So uh, I think at some point you're going to have to bite the bullet and give him that shot because when you take the Fabry, when you take Fabry away from Athanasiu and Filippola, you're kind of disassembling your your most effective line right now. When you have another piece who could potentially be elevated. Yeah, the the last that I heard about why they were doing it the way they were was sort of the, you know, the, the standard. And I think this is a fair reasoning in, in general about you want guys to earn that top line role. And, and you couldn't say that Zena had earned it over Fabry, which I think is true. I think Fabry has been one of their best players. However, I, at some point, I think you, you, you go a little bit broader and, and just say, Hey, but, but Fabry was really working with those other guys too. Yeah. And there's no reason from a high line hierarchy standpoint that you couldn't just say, I'm going to have two top lines and I'm going to play them equally. Um, maybe one gets a slight leaning over the other just because of the way the wings like to match the, the Larkin line defensively, particularly when they're at home. But, you know, to that point being there, you don't have to necessarily roll four lines uh, evenly. You don't have to play one line disproportionate to the other lines. You could say, I have a top line, and that's going to be the Larkin line, but I have a second line that's right there in terms of ice time, and then minimize maybe a little bit more of the third and the fourth lines um, to be able to get that balance of ice time if that's the concern. But, I mean, at some point you're going to have to bite the bullet because Zadina is, is making it difficult to ignore how well he's played. I mean, the guy's putting shots on net. He's, he's generating quality chances. He hasn't looked out of place uh, playing with, you know, Zadina – or playing with Helm and, and Nielsen. And so I, I'd just like to see what he looks like when he gets a better chance. Yeah, and it's it's not even to me. I'm, I'm not doing this this second guessing thing just to be like, oh, the, the top prospect should be on the first line. I just think it makes all the rest of the lineup fall into place. I think the the Fabry with Athanasio Philpola falls better. Helm Nielsen Glendening looked good last night. You know, like just make that the third line. I mean, they looked really really good. I thought in the third period when they got some shifts together, they were they were the line that really got the team going, and that I know Helm was the one that made the great pass to to Philip Ronick to set up his goal. And so that's a line that can still play pretty well. And particularly when Zadina or when Helms had such a good start to the season, I mean, he's been a little bit of a driver of play too. So, Hey, give him a shot. Like, I think, I think he's a guy that, 
uh, is maybe a little undervalued right now in terms of what he's able to bring offensively. So I'm fine with that line just being an all-out four-check line and elevate Zadina to the top line. It seems to just be a natural balance right now. Yeah, I know. And, and you know, when when they first called him up, we talked on the show about how I, I thought at the time that it would only be a matter of time. I still think that. It's just that from what we've seen in these first six games out of Philip Zadina, uh, I kind of think it, it should be now. Yeah, and, and you know the interesting thing in the maybe the long game, and maybe I'm putting on my rose glasses a little too early here. But what if the reason that this is happening, this this rationale of earning your line, is because they've already in their minds mentally committed to keeping him beyond nine games, and so at that yeah. point you're not giving him a a dry run on the top line to see what he looks like. You're saying this is a guy who's going to be here the rest of the season or majority of the season, even if Mantha comes back. I'm just going to play him and ease his way up and let him continue to build confidence as he works his way up. And once he starts putting, you know, together several really good games, we'll start to kind of lengthen the leash, if you will, um, in terms of what he's going to do. Um, that's just one, you know, conspiracy theory, whatever, rose-colored way of looking at it that maybe they have committed mentally that he is going to be here beyond nine games. Well, if that's the case, then I think it would make a lot more sense personally, because then then you're looking at it from the same logic that that maybe you did with with Manthar with Athens you early in their careers, where you're just trying to show them, you know, not, these things aren't going to be handed to you just because you're one of the more skilled prospects. Yeah, exactly that. And so I think if you frame it from that perspective, that hey, we've already decided this guy's going to be up here. He knows that, um, and if that's the case, and this all makes a lot more sense versus. You know, this is his nine-game dry run to decide if he's going to stay up or not. Um, I think if they've if they've already made that decision to go ahead and burn that entry-level contract, which you and I have both talked about, we perceive that to be a very smart decision on their part. Um, then that all makes a whole lot more sense if he's going to eventually work his way up. Worth noting that both the Red Wings and Zadina have said so far that they're treating it pretty day to day, but I don't know that they would have said otherwise. So. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine they're just going to come out and tell the public that, yeah, we're going to just, we're going to keep them up here for the foreseeable future, you know, given just with how, uh, how information tends to flow in and out. Yeah, when I was in Grand Rapids on Wednesday, that was one of my big takeaways was, you know, he looked, he looked good. He had a good game, not a, not an unreal game. He, don't, he didn't score. Uh, but my big takeaway was this is a guy who should be in the NHL. It's, it's not that he wasn't being challenged. He is still being challenged by the American Hockey League. He's not a dominant American Hockey League player. But I think his game plays up when he can play with guys who think the game at the level he does. It's no disrespect to guys in the AHL. There's a lot of really smart and good players there. Um, but, you know, the guys who are in the – you know what they call the worst player in the NHL? An NHL player. <laughs> that is very true. Yeah. All right. Uh, should we move on a little bit? Let's talk about the Comrie debut. I, I think that it was uh, probably a good thing for them to get him into that game, uh, see him a little bit late. Do you think we're going to see Eric Comrie this week uh, in one of the two games against his former team in Winnipeg? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense is uh, getting him into a game against Winnipeg, particularly in Winnipeg where he kind of got the start to his NHL career. That might, uh, you know, that might make a lot of sense for him to to be able to get his first start there, get uh, get some game action because it has been a little bit of time for him, um, you know, since he's played his last uh, NHL game. He got a couple of uh, starts in the AHL this year on a conditioning stint, but he hadn't played with Arizona um, this year and he had only gotten one game with the Jets the year prior and so he's a guy that just needs some some ice time he's a guy that you just needs a chance and so I think getting him a chance in Winnipeg where you know his previous four NHL starts have come 
uh, I think that's a good situation for him, um, particularly in a road game where maybe you go in with a little bit lower expectations. You have a little bit more of the uh, road game plan, which is, tends to be a little bit more conservative uh, in place. That might be a good scenario to get him in. Yeah, yep, I agree. I asked him today. He said he doesn't know, but uh, that, that'd be my bet. I, I bet. I bet you they play him on Tuesday. I mean, hey, he had a nice snappy glove save uh, in the game against Pittsburgh. He only faced four shots, which I think two were generously credited as shots. I think the puck just kind of slow rolled up on him. But, you know, all that being the same, I mean, I'm excited to see what he brings because he's kind of the key right now to Detroit's long-term and short-term goaltending plan, uh, given that Howard's contract's up at the end of the year and Bernier's only got one more year after um, Comrie's kind of that stopgap between the rest of the guys in the in the pipeline, the Jesper Elias and the uh, Philip Larson and, and guys of that nature. He's that stopgap right now. Yeah, Larson had his uh, ECHL debut the other night. Did you see how that went at all? Yeah, I, uh, I didn't get to physically see it, but I talked to some people who watched the game down in Toledo, and they said he, he did let in a couple of ugly ones, including one where he kind of got all turned out of sorts on a breakaway. So hopefully it's just a matter of time for him to find some confidence uh, down down in Toledo, find his rhythm, find his game, spend a little bit more time working with the goaltending coaches. Um, I'm hopeful that that will... Uh, get him his game back but in the meantime the other guy to really watch is, is Jesper Eliasson who was named to Team Sweden's World Junior Team and so he'll be the other guy to keep your eye on in addition to Keith Petruzzelli. I guess he's played three games I didn't I must have not been paying close enough attention down there yeah neither have I I think the only one I had heard of was his most recent start where he didn't look uh all that great yeah he's he's played three games he's got one win two losses gave up uh nine goals on 79 shots so his state percentage still like 886 that's that's not good yeah and you know goaltending i feel small like sample. when we're yeah yeah it's a small sample and when we talk about projecting goaltenders i feel like very few goaltenders just have a really clean path to the nhl um i just when you look at the projection all the way from their draft year to when they officially hit the NHL, there are very few guys um, that just have that natural transition uh, who look like excellent players as juniors, look like excellent players in the draft, and then make their way seamlessly into the NHL. I mean, Carey Price had his ups and downs getting to the NHL. There's a, you know, for those of you who are big world juniors guys, I mean, there's a handful of goalies. One guy in particular that stands out is Zach Fucali. Um, who was uh, Canada's world junior goalie a handful of years back. And a lot of people had him pegged as the next big thing, and he never made the NHL. Um, you had the guy down in, in Dallas who I'm blanking on, American goaltender, um, who, again, tried to break in with the Kings, tried to break in with the Stars, Jack Campbell. Um, he, again, was another guy who was pegged to be a, a, a big-time goaltender and never – found any sustained success in the NHL. And so I think it's really important to just keep expectations tempered when it comes to a guy like Larson. Just because he hasn't made it yet doesn't mean he's not going to. And just because he's struggling doesn't mean he won't find his game at some point. Rarely is it a seamless transition to the NHL for goaltenders. Nonetheless, discouraging development this year for the Red Wings. And and obviously, we think part of the reason they probably went and made that Comrie trade. 
Yeah, I mean, even without it, even if you had Larson come in and, and post a, a 9-10 save percentage, look decent in the AHL, I still don't know that they would have committed to bringing him up next season to back up Jonathan Burns. Oh, no, I think that and the transition would have been, you know, this year back up in the AHL, next year start in the AHL, you know. Yeah, and so I still think either way, it was a ne- it was a need that you were going to need to either get somebody in free agency in the upcoming year or you were going to need to make a deal to get a stopgap goalie of a guy like Eric Comrie's age. And so, you know, either way, I think that deal is necessitated. But this is a big blow, and it, again, throws some more question marks into Detroit's goaltending pipeline, given that if Larson's not ready even in two years, because all you've got is Comrie under contract for next year, um, you're, you've got to figure out is Eliasson, um, Comrie, Petruzzelli, or Larson, or one of those four guys – going to be the guy that's ready uh, after next season or the wings again going to have to be searching for um, you know a goaltender and that's why a lot of people have asked about are the wings going to be very interested in a guy like Askarov the great Russian goalie draft prospect this year who's had an excellent excellent um, season thus far he's all the way up in the KHL he'll be at the world juniors um, for Russia as well so you know, that's why a lot of people have asked, would the Wings take him if they were picking at four? Um, and it's a, it's a question that certainly, you know, is reasonable to ask at this point in time, given the number of question marks. Yep. Yep, it is. And, and we'll talk plenty about uh, about that as we go, I'm sure. I did want to ask you, while we're on the prospect note, have, did you see Ethan Phillips' assist for, at Boston University this weekend? I did not. I miss. I must have missed that. I'll have to go back and, and check I, that I out. I tweeted it if you want to. If you want want to find it quickly, but it's a it's a really nice play. Impressive from him, where he he hustles up the ice on, on a loose puck, retrieves it, makes a, a nice little simple pass to a guy behind him, and Robert Master Simone, also a Red Wings prospect, uh, finishes the playoff with a goal. I was really impressed by that. Yeah, Phillips was a guy that you know ran under the radar uh, last year in the draft simply because he was so small. He was playing behind a number of the bigger name centers. You know, last year the the U.S. Uh, national team and the U.S. Uh, HL they were just absolutely loaded. It was the best year ever for for the U.S. development program, and so he d- he didn't see a lot of ice time um, or didn't really get as much publicity after guys like you know obviously Jack Hughes, Alex Turcott. Um, and other high-profile pivots that were playing in, in the U.S. hockey program, and so Phillips is a guy just at his size, five foot nine. Again, was probably overlooked, but he's got a lot of hockey IQ. And yeah, Max, looking at that assist right now, that's just the kind of play you want to see uh, him making. And uh, hopefully, he's getting to build some chemistry with Robert Master Simone out there, who's again another undersized guy, but a guy who's got a great great shot and could be a, a potential factor for the Wings in the coming years. He was out of Sioux Falls, right, in the USHL? Yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. Yep, yeah, so that was a good play, and obviously for Red Wings fans, really good to see two of their prospects connecting. I think they've played together a decent amount this year, Phillips and, and Master Simone. Yeah, they've been basically slotted on that second line uh, for Boston University behind, because uh, you've got Alex Turcott out there as well, and so Turcott's kind of centering that top line, but uh, Phillips and Master Simone have played a lot on the second line. Zegris, Zegris is, yeah. Or sorry, Zegris, yeah, not Turcott, sorry. Trevor Zegris is out in uh, in Boston University, so he's on that top line, and then you've got uh, Phillips and, and uh, Master Simone playing mostly on that second line there. That's a young team, man. It's a young team, but an exciting team. And also another Wings uh, prospect out there is Casper Kotkinsalo, uh, 
who's been playing defense and then actually got a couple of games up at forward yeah. um, and then has gone back to defense. So he's, he's getting a little bit of interesting usage out there as well. So basically Boston University is a team to watch if you're a uh, NCAA hockey fan. Yeah, Red Wings is like basically, I think like half of their, well, I mean most of their college prospects are in that same uh, New England area, especially we add in Patrick Hallway at Maine and uh, they got somebody else not not too far away. Yeah, I'm blanking no, on the uh, hallway left Maine. Actually, he he was at Maine and he transferred Mer- Merrimack, maybe. Yeah, I think, I, think I think you're right. And then Petrozelli at Quinnipiac. So basically, all the Red Wings college players are uh, are in New England right now. Yeah, makes things a little bit easier on the development staff. Uh, any other prospects you want to talk about this week? I mean, we, we've been trying to add in a little bit more uh, prospect stuff to the podcast, especially as the the focus of the season has 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 forced our hand uh, in that direction. Yeah, well, we're a couple of weeks away from the World Junior Championships, and so a lot of teams have come out with their rosters. And so there's going to be a number of Red Wings prospects playing in the World Juniors for people to keep their eyes on. And so obviously Germany will have more at Cider, and he'll, I, my expectation is he'll likely captain that team. Um, I don't know that Germany is officially named a captain yet, but I suspect that he will captain them just like he did last year. Uh, on Canada, you'll have Joe Valeno and, and Jared McIsaac. Um, I don't know that Valeno's officially been uh, cleared by the Wings to to join Canada, but I suspect that he is. Max, do you know if that's the case? Valeno? Yeah. I expect him to be there. There has been no official word, but my expectation is that he'll be there. Yeah, so the expectation is he'll be there, and then you have Jared McIsaac on the back end there. Sweden, as I mentioned previously, uh, goalie Jesper Eliasson is going to be out there. I don't I don't expect him to be the starter, um, but he should get a couple of games in. And then uh, Jonathan Berggren, obviously we Max and I have talked about him a number of times, really good scoring winger. Expect him to be a, a big factor in Team Sweden's success. And then in Finland, uh, Otto Kivenmäki, or Otto Von Tiny, affectionately known, uh, even though he's had a slow start this season, he's come on a little bit of late, um, and so he'll be on Team Finland's roster once again. Those are all that I've seen thus far. Um, Russia's released a roster, no wings are on on Team Russia, uh, Chuchiev did not make the cut, unfortunately, um, as Russia went for a little bit of an older roster. Um, and so the U.S. has not finalized their roster, to my knowledge, and so I haven't seen anybody um, wings-wise there. But it should be an exciting World Juniors for Wings fans, both from seeing a lot of prospects, a lot of high-profile prospects for the Wings, as well as getting a good look at a number of the top draft picks um, for the upcoming draft, you're going to likely have Quentin Byfield, Alexi Lafreniere on Team Canada. Um, you'll probably have uh, Jamie Drysdale on the back end of Canada, who's uh, projected to be the top defenseman in this year's draft. Over in Sweden, you'll have Alexander Holtz and Lucas Raymond, uh, the two of the likely top five players in this year's draft. Um, over in Finland, you'll have Anton Lundell. Um, Roni Hervonen, so a couple of good Finnish forwards there as well. Um, it's going to be an exciting World Juniors to watch, so uh, tune in as you're able to. Is uh, is Atu Roddy the the 2021 early? Yeah, he's so so Roddy on Team Finland. Atu Roddy, and I believe his brother is also on the team as well. Uh, Roddy is going to likely be a top three pick uh, in the 2021 draft. He is that good. He's having such an excellent season already. Um, I suspect he's, he's going to be a top three pick in the 2021 draft. So if you want to go
go ahead and start scouting for next next year's draft, um, he's a guy to watch. And I feel like we can pretty safely say that <laughs> that's people are free to do so. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's going to be highly unlikely that the that the Wings are not in a similar position next season. Um, unless they magically find a way to land the top two picks in the draft. And even then, uh, there's still a handful of pieces away from being uh, totally competitive. So plan on watching Rowdy a little bit while you're in, uh, watching the World Junior Championships. Is McIsaac, uh, is he still in play for Canada's D, or was his rehab too slow to get him there? No, my, I believe he was actually already named to Canada's uh, oh. team. So uh, he's already on the back end there. So I suspect he'll... Uh, factor in for them uh, in a big way he's he's been back playing the last couple of weeks um so i i suspect him to to play a big role for canada man that means that there is probably something to watch for in every single game if you're a red wings fan whether you're watching sweden and it's bergren raymond holtz whether it's russia with askarov germany cider usa is master simone a contender for usa at all uh i believe he's a contender but i don't know that he's gonna make the team Okay. Well, the USA will still be in that division where there's basically right. Canada. Yeah. So I, they, there could be something Red Wings related in every single game of that tournament. Yeah, it's going to be a really exciting tournament for Wings fans. Um, you know, in years past, Wings fans haven't really tuned into it as as much, um, given that there either wasn't a ton of prospects involved or didn't really have a high draft pick. But this is the year to watch because there's a, there's a lot of good talent here already in the organization as well as a potential future member. Yeah, and if, if if you guys are interested in that side of it, watching the under-18 guys, I would also remind everybody that the U18 Worlds are going to be in Plymouth this year. If you want to see some of the, the top young talent in the world and some of the guys the Red Wings will be deciding between, not just in their, with their top five, presumably, pick, but also potentially in the second round, uh, maybe even a little bit later, I would highly recommend going to that tournament. Uh, I'm planning to be there for all, if most, if not all of it. So it'd be uh, cool to see people there, and I, I bet everyone would get a lot out of out of that uh, experience. Yeah, that's going to be a really exciting tournament. Um, definitely, definitely check it out if you're able to get up to Plymouth. Absolutely. Last prospect note I want to make: I was down in Grand Rapids this week. Uh, I, Michael Rasmussen, I. I didn't see him there, but from what I understand, I believe he's he's skating. So I don't know if that provides much. I don't have a whole lot more than that. I don't have a timeline, but I've been getting a lot of questions about Rasmussen lately. That's as much as I've got for you right now. Yeah, hopefully he's not out too much longer. What seemed like a promising season for him has kind of been derailed, unfortunately, with a with a couple of injuries. And so hopefully he's not out uh, too much longer. Yeah, I think a lot of people would like to see him back, especially, you know, I think the Red Wings could really use him at the net right now. I know it's it's best for him to be playing center and be be developing in the AHL, but um, that's a guy who I would think if he can get back fairly quickly, like, he could put himself in position to be up for, for March and April. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, what the Wings have really put themselves in position to do is turn over a lot of their roster relatively quickly um, including as quickly as this trade deadline, if there were some pieces, um, if there were any of the restricted free agents that they aren't anticipating being back, those are guys that are easier to move at the time of the deadline. You know, there's still probably going to be a market for a couple of these players. And so, hey, if the Wings move a couple of guys at the deadline and then decide to free uh, free up some space for guys like Rasmussen or even Sider at the end of the year, um, you know, that's a real p- possibility right now. Certainly would be interesting. 
Um, anyone jump out to you in, in that in that mold? We've talked about mm-hmm. Athanasiu a fair bit. Yeah, I mean, obviously Athanasiu is the guy that you know he's come up the most just because of what's his long term future uh, with the team, and if you don't pencil him in to be a part of that long-term core, then he's the guy that's most natural to move and get the most for potentially even another first round pick. Um, but beyond that, I mean, you know, Adam Ernie is 24 years old, making a million dollars restricted free agent. He's a guy that if a team is looking for a third or fourth line grinder um, that they're able to interchange in, he's a guy you might be able to move, um, you know, for a late round draft pick. Uh, I'm talking like sixth or seventh round. Brendan Perlini probably has a higher pedigree and would likely net you something a little bit higher than that. Um, and those are probably the two guys that I think, uh, you know, Max, you had a good article this week talking about the likelihood of restricted free agents being back. With those two guys, you know, being on the lower end, um, I believe, from your article. And so if that's the case, maybe that you can fetch some later round picks for those guys, free up the roster spot. And then make a move to bring up a guy like Sider or, or, or Rasmussen. And so, you know, that, that'll be an interesting thing to watch. Yeah, I got a couple of questions from people who wanted to know kind of my, my methodology with those and whether it was just whether they would be tendered an offer. I was kind of factoring in the trade possibilities to those. Um, I don't know if, I don't know what you, what you thought of, of the kind of, I put estimated likelihoods on, on each of those that I thought they would be, uh, Red Wings next year. I don't know what, what you thought of, uh, how I assigned those. I mean, I, I largely agreed um, with the premise of if they are Red Wings next year. I think it's it would be foolish to say the Wings aren't going to tender. And what but tendering means is basically you're retaining, you're offering, you're basically giving them the the qualifying offer to continue negotiations with that player. Um, I think you're going to expect the Wings to do that for all of them, um, whether or not a deal is actually signed given that most of them are arbitration eligible um, which does offer the wings the ability to walk away from a deal if it does make it all the way to arbitration um, I whether or not there are pieces there I don't think all of them are back and I think most of them are not back uh, either via trade at the trade deadline via trade in the offseason or via just not uh, coming to terms with a, a deal together just because the Wings do have a number of guys they could elevate. You have to see what you land from the 2020 draft. And there's a number of pieces that the Wings could turn over if they needed to, um, whether it be free agency or deals. We know Steve Eiserman's not a guy to hesitate pulling the trigger. So I think your your assessment of the likelihood of them being on the opening night roster next year is is relatively accurate. Well, and some of them were, were GR guys. So, like, I put Dominic Turge on right. 60%, for example. Um, but, you know... So here, here's a little bit of the inside inside uh, methodology or whatever. There's eight guys that I profiled in the article. I didn't do Athanasiu, Bertuzzi, or Mantha because I feel like those are obvious situations. I'll get into their situations a little more in depth and a little bit differently uh, soon, hopefully. But I figured – so I, I I look at eight guys. Robbie Fabry, Christopher N., Brendan Perlini, Adam Ernie, Tara Hirose, Evgeny Svechnikov, Ryan Kuffner, Dominic Turgeon, the eight other forwards uh, that are going to be RFAs. And the numbers, the percentages add up to 4.5. So that, that says that I think about four or five of those eight uh, will start next season in the Red Wings organization. Yeah, and I think that's a reasonable assessment for the number that will be in the Wings organization. I think it's really difficult at this point in time to be any more certain either way. I don't know if people want error bars attached to those percentages <laughs> or not, but you know, I think it's harder to be any more uh, certain than that at this point in time. 
Yeah. So I think I think the one that scared people was when I said 65% Svechnikov. I think people worried that I meant there's only a 65% chance they they tender him an offer. I'm I'm kind of building in the idea that if they're not giving him NHL looks and I've been told that he's 100% healthy, um is there is there the possibility that he could be traded? Is there the possibility that they'll do something with him? So um and that's not me saying that I think he necessarily will. I I think by putting him on the the plus side of 50 is me kind of saying I think he's going to be back, but I wanted to make sure it added up to a number that if I'm putting 70% on everybody or 80%, which is the, you know, more like the likelihood they tender somebody is going to be like 80, 80% or higher, like Prashant is saying, um, then all of a sudden you add it up and it's like, oh, only one player will be gone at the end. And, and so that's not how I wanted to approach it. So I wouldn't sweat the, the percentages a ton. I kind of threw it in there just as a, maybe more like a barometer. But uh, that's how I did that. I felt like maybe it was worth elaborating on it a little bit here. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's a good elaboration. I think the important piece is that you know while the percentages seem low, you have to remember look at what this team is doing right now. The Wings are not going to trot back the same team if they have the opportunity exactly. to 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 turn it up at any point here. I mean, bringing back the same team and expecting a different result is is not going to work. Um, you know, for the next season, so expect there to be a fair bit of roster turnover. It's probably going to be the highest roster turnover season the Wings have had in a handful of years, uh, simply because they have the opportunity to do so. And smartly, you want to maintain that roster flexibility uh, year after year. And so Iserman has really set up the team this far uh, with that capability, so expect it to happen. Yeah, it's going to be a, a stark contrast from last season when, when the Red Wings really had very few contract matters that they needed to deal with. Um, you know, they pretty much were able to focus on the draft and unrestricted free agency. And by the way, I've actually been more and more impressed as the season has gone. And I was pretty underwhelmed by the moves that they made uh, on July 1 last year. I, I've been more and more impressed with, with the the idea to bring in Philpola and Nemeth. No, they haven't been world changers. But I think um, Philpola, especially as Franz Nielsen has has dropped off here, has been a really needed addition. And I, last time I looked, Patrick Nemeth was grading out among the best even strength D impacts, uh, according to Evolving Hockey, uh, in the league. Yeah, so again, a lot of people, myself included, question why bring those guys in if you wanted to elevate some prospects. But I think the piece none of us really um, appreciated was how significant Franz Nielsen's decline has been and, and continues to be um, as he's really struggled this season. And then, you know, how... Looking at the way the decor has shaken out this year with the number of injuries that the uh, Wings have faced, I mean, you've got Dylan McElrath, a guy that neither of us figured would be in the Wings lineup, would even be in the conversation to be in the Wings lineup. And he's been playing, you know, he's played 10, 15 games for the Wings right now. Um, if you think about what would have happened without all of those injuries, or if you didn't sign Nemeth, you didn't have Philpola, I mean, conceivably, this team is in a far worse position if you're talking about Franz Nielsen as your second line center, given that uh, Rasmussen has been unable to stay healthy. Valeno has not had a strong start to his AHL, um, his initial AHL campaign. You didn't really have any of their options. Um, so both those guys have, have been serviceable stop gaps. Now, again, you still look and you, you take your step back and you say, okay, but this team is still squarely last in the league with a horrific, historic goal differential right now. But I don't think it's really either of those guys' fault, and I think it's important to recognize it would likely be worse um, without those two guys in place right now. Can I give you a just mind-blowing stat right now? I'm ready for it. 
According to the even strength defense component of Evolving Hockey's goals above replacement, Patrick Nemeth has the eighth best even strength D component in the league. Who is number four? Number four. It's not necessarily the, like the number. It's just a guy who's like ahead of like of the, of the seven guys ahead of him. Here's one of them. Oh, this uh, this is gonna be interesting. Um, it's I'm not guess like it's, it's not like a bad player. It's just a player that I wasn't expecting to see in this category. Uh, let's go with Mike Green. Quinn Hughes. Quinn Hughes. Ah, uh, that's gonna make everybody feel good. That's gonna make Way everyone to go, Max. feel really Way bad. Way to he's, go, Max. He's above Miro Haskinen. He's the four. Oh my gosh. What a player Quinn Hughes is, man. He I mean, he's an unbelievable skater. Impressive. The, the rookie, honestly, the, the Calder Trophy, uh, contest this year between, uh, Quinn Hughes and Kale McCarr is, is next level. This is, this is fun stuff. It's so fun. Those guys are both just unreal players. And, and a reminder that, especially as people talk about the, the fears of the Red Wings dropping out of the, the, the top or the top two spots in this draft, both of those guys were taken at number four or later. So, uh, as long as you scout well, it's possible to get cold or trophy level, you know, franchise cornerstone level players, uh, at, at numbers four, five, six, seven, two. Yeah, because if you go by the same evolving wild uh, goals above replacement, number one in the entire league is Kale McCarr, and number six is Quinn Hughes. This yep, is the entire right. league. That's not just a single component, but those are one and six, and those were both picked at four or later. So do your homework, do your scouting in a deep draft like the 2020 draft, and you are going to come away with some uh, real strong talent. Elias Pettersson also uh, picked at number five as number seven on that on that list that you just mentioned. Yeah, I mean, there's a handful of excellent players uh, right at the top here. Yep, absolutely. All right, should we move on to the questions? Anything else you want to talk about before we go to our wonderful listeners? No, let's uh, let's hit the questions. All right, so the first one I think is an awesome one from Peter Kletcha, who who says, can you and Prashant speculate a bit? Kletcha, Kletcha, what do you think? I don't know. I'm going to go with the first pronunciations. Peter, right. correct us when you're listening to this. That's right. Uh, could you and Prashant speculate a bit about what you think the blue line looks like next year, both in Detroit and Grand Rapids, between the expected exodus of unrestricted free agents and now the trades of Regula and Sarah Yarvi? Seems to him that things look pretty thin for both clubs. Your thoughts? Yeah, this is uh, this is one of the pieces or one of the areas where, going back to what I just said about Eisman having the ability to turn over the roster this is probably going to be the area that looks the most different uh, for Wings fans uh, next season. So for starters, the guys who you're likely going to see back, guys I don't see going anywhere. So Patrick Nemeth is under contract. He's got one more year left. That'll be next season. You've got Danny DeKaiser, who's got two more years left, so next season and then 2021-2022. Then after that, you'll have Philip Ronick and Dennis Chalowski. So you've got those two guys who are going to be on the last season of their entry-level contract. Um, so you've got those guys at cheap. Those are both going to be under a million dollars. But then after that, your expectation is likely that Dylan McElrath is, is not a part of the Wings organization. Um, he'll likely, if the Wings retain him, or sorry, he's under contract next season, so he'll likely be in Grand Rapids. Um, but Trevor Daly's an unrestricted free agent. Alex Biega's an unrestricted free agent. Jonathan Erickson's an unrestricted free agent. And Mike Green's an unrestricted free agent. And I would strongly suspect, I would actually place a, you know, better than, uh, 60% chance, better than 70% chance that none of those guys are back next year. Um, and so that's going to leave you a lot of opportunity to, to turn that over. 
And then you have Madison Bowie as a restricted free agent. Um, and Oliver Kasky down in Grand Rapids, he is also a restricted free agent. Both those guys have arbitration rates. I, again, don't expect either of those guys to be back. I don't know that this is what Kasky expected, although that's just me speculating. And Bowie um, has really struggled. I think he was, again, just another stopgap, another opportunity for the Wings to evaluate a younger player. But I don't think at this point in time he's an NHL-level defenseman that's regular uh, that should be in the top six. Um, and so we can go ahead at the NHL level. I'd say pencil in or pen in, really. You can ink in Danny DeKaiser, Patrick Nemeth, Philip Ronick, and Dennis Chalowski. My personal opinion is Moritz Sider is going to get one of those remaining spots. And then after that, I think it's an absolute free-for-all. And I think Detroit would be more likely to go pick out a free agency to fill that sixth uh, defensive spot as opposed to elevating... Jared McIsaac, Gustav Lindstrom, um, or any of those guys, you know, Joe Hicketts, uh, any of those guys down in Grand Rapids right now. My my expectation is Eisenman would, would probably prefer to pull out of uh, free agency to fill that last spot. Um, and so then that would leave Grand Rapids, you know, with a much cleaner picture because Jared McIsaac will be eligible to move to the AHL next season. Um, Gustav Lindstrom will be there. You'll still have Joe Hicketts. You'll still have Lashoff. You'll still have McElrath. Um, and then after that, it'll be interesting to see how uh, Grand Rapids kind of fills that out. If the Wings take a defenseman who's ready to come over, if Auntie Tuamisto is ready to come over, um, you know, you have a number Setkov. of yeah, Setkov, Albert Johansson. Um, you have a number of guys who could also come over if if you wanted them to. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, even Cooper Moore, technically, he's not in the CHL. He could potentially come over, although I don't I don't think he's ready um, to do that. So it'll be interesting to see uh, who fills that sixth spot in Grand Rapids. But there's a lot of chances for turnover. And I think that you'll likely see one free agent come into Detroit and potentially one prospect elevated to Grand Rapids. So let's talk about some of the free agents then, because I, I feel like we would be uh, kind of teases if we if we say, "Ooh, maybe a free agent," and we don't we don't throw any uh, juicy names out there. So we have to throw out some juicy names for everybody. All right, Eric Carlson. No, he's <laughs> he's not a free agent. Um, Rob so uh, can... Rob Rossi, our Pens writer, kind of messaged uh, or, or tweeted this actually the other day, asking if the Red Wings would would throw the bag at Justin Schultz, who's going to be thirty. Um, but what do you think about Justin Schultz from that perspective? Schultz is an interesting guy. He got off to a really rough start. In fact, he was the original, like, come out of college defenseman who a lot of people were kind of thinking about when Danny DeKaiser first came out. He went to Edmonton and he struggled mightily in Edmonton. Um, came to Pittsburgh, showed flashes of being much more solid, kind of rediscovered his offensive game as one would do playing with Malkin and Crosby and Kessel. Um, but he's a guy that I would not commit a lot of money to. Right now he's getting $5.5 million, uh, as his cap hit. He's 29, going to be 30. He's a guy that maybe gives you some points but doesn't really impact the rest of the on-ice game the way you want him to. And so my personal opinion is I would stay away from a guy like Schultz. And, in fact, I would really stay away from any of the high-dollar you know, free agents. So that's going to rule out your Alex Petrangelo, who's likely going to get squeezed out of St. Louis, um, and he'll likely be looking for a new um, contract elsewhere. Uh, that would be my guess. 
um, given the the acquisition of Justin Falk by the team in the off season or yeah off season. Um, Tyson Berry is another big name that's out there. He's a guy again I think would be a nice fit. Would instantly be Detroit's you know second best defenseman I think or even best right up there with Philip Ronick. But again, he's 28, going to be 29, and I think you're going to have to commit too many years to him to where. Uh, you're not going to want to do that in order to remain competitive during his contract. A guy you've thrown out is Tory Krug, but again, he's 29, going to be 30. I'd have, again, be hesitant giving a lot of money to him. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm picking on a defenseman that I would like the wings to, to maybe chase, it's going to be either a, a guy who can fit in at a lower cost deal, maybe a guy like Trevor Van Riemsdyk, who's in Carolina right now. He's getting $2.3 million. He's a serviceable defenseman who can slot in on that uh, third pairing. He's not going to have to give him a ton of money to do so. But he's a guy that I would be interested in in placing uh, in the wings, kind of taking a look at. Uh, Christian Juice in Washington right now. He's a 25-year-old restricted free agent. I'm not sure that Washington has been able to find a place for him. He's a guy that you might be able to acquire in a swap. Um, finding a way to get him some ice time, you know, in Detroit. But those are the kinds of guys that I would focus on as a Wings fan. Give me a stopgap. Give me two years on a load, like, you know, for Van Reams, like you could do two years, two and a half million per year, and you're likely going to be able to sign them, and you're not committing a lot of money, and you're not trying to stretch your cap uh, too early. So that's kind of where I would lean in terms of filling out the Wings defense. How about Eric Gustafson? Gustafson would be an interesting uh, pick as well. I'm not sure that the Wings would be able to afford him. Is he a is he a restricted free agent or is he uh, unrestricted? I believe he's unrestricted. Uh... Yeah, he's unrestricted. So he's going to be 1.2. He's had a really good year in Chicago this year. I suspect he's in line for a bigger um, increase. Although I don't know that he would top three three and a half million. So I think he's another guy who could be a serviceable pickup for the Wings. And on the younger end, especially when you're, when we're talking about unrestricteds and, and we talk about, well, he's, he's 29, 30. Well, that's all of them. If you're getting to unrestricted free agency, right. uh, you're, you're probably pretty old. Eric Gustafson, though, is only 27 right now. He won't turn 28 until pretty much the last few weeks of the season. Yeah, so Gustafson, and he's had a really strong start to the year with 10 points and 28 uh, games playing on that Chicago team. So he's certainly a guy that uh, would be very interesting for, for the Wings to add. I also have this weird in my brain that he played like youth hockey with Patrick Nemeth, but I'm not a thousand percent, so don't quote me on that. But that could be a, a selling point. I'm sure a lot of these guys, like when, when you're the Red Wings, this is one reason why I brought up Tory Krug is that you're gonna have to find a, a really good sales pitch to, to bring a guy to Detroit uh, and, and join a team in the state that they're in. And sometimes that sales pitch is. Hey, here's a lot of money, but other times that sales pitch can be other things. And if you're Detroit, I'm I'm not so sure that they shouldn't try to do what Carolina did last year and kind of wait for something like the like the Jake Gardner situation to pop up, where a guy who it's inexplicable why he's still available as long as he is is then able to sign a, a better contract. I think you're always you know if, if there's a guy you like, you're best served signing him the minute that the free agency opens. But if if you're willing to to wait it out and just kind of look for look for a specific uh, kind of value fit combination, then that's an option too. The other guy I, I saw on, as I'm scrolling through uh, Spot Track's uh, free agents list was Dylan DeMello from Ottawa. I'm not sure Ottawa, why Ottawa would let him go. I mean, he, I think he was part of their, 
Wasn't he part of the Carlson trade? Yes, he was part of the Carlson trade. So maybe they're not very inclined to let him go, but I, I don't think, you know, he seems to have it okay um, on ice impacts. Yeah, I mean, he, he's, again, another guy um, that would be interesting to look at. I mean, hey, sticking with Carolina, Joel Edmondson is also going to be um, an unrestricted free agent at the end of the year, and he's a guy with Carolina I've mentioned having Van Riemsdyk, Hayden Fleury, Jake Bean. They've got a number of guys they probably want to elevate. I can't imagine him being retained in Carolina, and he's actually looked really, really solid. Um, going back to your point about the Jake Gardner in terms of the guy that may inexplicably be available. I mean, Alex Petrangelo could end up being that guy, or Tyson Berry can end up being that guy. Berry got off to a really rough start in Toronto um, under Babcock and has gotten a little bit, has kind of righted the ship a little bit uh, this season um, as Sheldon Keefe has taken over. But, hey, if he doesn't have a strong season, he's a guy that you look at. I mean, TJ Brody is also going to be 30, 31, I believe. And he's a guy, again, I'd, I'd be curious to see if Calgary lets him get away, and if any of those guys are kind of circulating for whatever reason, maybe you take a flyer on them at a very discounted one-year or two-year deal. So I'll make my my pitch for Krug again really briefly here, which is that I think he feels something that the Red Wings desperately need, which is a no-doubt power play one quarterback who brings the offense. He plays it on the left side, which I know that they like with with sort of the configuration of their handedness of their shooters. So a guy who can pass down to Zadina or across to uh, Robbie Fabry, to the slot to Larkin. They do like that all-lefty look on, on that power play. Though I think as Philip Perona continues to advance, it may be something they have to revisit because, frankly, he's too good of a power play weapon to be uh, confined to a, a secondary role much longer. Um, so that would be one argument for Tory Krug. I think the age I wouldn't worry a ton about as long as you're not giving him maybe eight. I mean, they can't give him eight years, seven years. I mean, you're, you're paying him until he's 37. So maybe you're trying to overpay to get a five year deal or something. Um, that'd be something I would, I would look at though if I were them. I think he's a big missing piece. He's a winner with, you know, with no doubt he's fearless. Um, that's a guy who I really would think if I was them that I would be looking at. If you want to make the case for Petrangelo though, here's how you'd do it. And James Myrtle explored this on The Athletic this week uh, with with a Leafs bent for if the Leafs should go after him. And Dom did one of the charts that he does that I think are invaluable, which kind of show along an aging curve how, based on game score, a player's trajectory will age you know, with a contract. So it really looks at how he'll be through 2025, which is like a seven-year deal. Um, and it still has him projected by game score to be a top pair defenseman worth, you know, seven plus million by then. He's still supposed to be an elite defenseman both of the next two years, a quote unquote number one for the two years after that, and then a top pair defenseman for the two years after that. So to me, if you want to go and get Alex Petrangelo, you're doing it for two reasons. Number one, because you trust in, in how the aging curve says he'll age. And number two, because is there a better player in the entire league to mentor Moritz Sider than Alex Petrangelo? I mean, probably not. He's a, uh... Ideally, the exact player you want if you're going to bring up Moritz Sider and, and, and let him play, you know, maybe you let him play in some smaller minutes, but, you know, Petrangelo is certainly the guy you want uh, being able to teach him. I think that aging curve analysis is, is relatively interesting because um, I think one of the, the faults to all of the aging curves that currently exist is they model all players in the same fashion. And what I mean by that is, an elite player ages the same as an average player, which ages the same as a below average player. Um, they're all modeled along the same curve. 
And so one of the things that's at least being explored by me as I'm trying to find time to finish this is how do, if you were to bucket players, and again, binning is a bad word in stats, but I'm doing it for a valid reason, so um, we'll, we'll ignore that for a second. Um, basically, if you were to take these players and bucket them by the maximum game score that they achieve and say, all right, players who are in this bucket of game scores, these are the elite players, players who are kind of clustered around the average or the average ones, and players who kind of cluster in that below average ones, and then look at how those tails of the aging curve change, I suspect you'd find those elite players like Petrangelo do age a lot better um, than, let's say, a defenseman who is smack dab average. Those are the guys who tend to fall off the cliff um, a lot more relative to the elite player. You you rarely see those elite guys all of a sudden stop being elite overnight. It's usually a very slow, drawn-out progression. And so that would be, again, lending more credence to Max's theory of, uh, hey, if you're able to get Petrangelo at a four- or five-year deal um, where he's going to be a still number one defenseman all throughout, that's a that's an excellent move that you want to make if you've got the cap space for it, which the Wings certainly will. What was Yossi's number that he just signed at, like nine nine five or something like that? Yeah, Yossi signed for a ridiculous amount of money. He so, went from being think, one of the best value deals to actually on the higher side now. Yeah, it looks like it's nine million a season. So I think if you're Petrangelo, why are you going to a rebuilding team for less than that? So if you offer him six times nine, I'd do it. Not nine's a scary number, Max. Not to me, yeah, I don't it's know. A, it's a scary high number. Um, now, granted, there there is in all likelihood the cap is going to go up in the next couple of seasons. I think one thing is there's the big TV deal that's going to kick in, which should boost the cap up. And, and $9 million right now, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a hefty deal. I mean, we're talking, um, you know, almost uh, 11 12% of the cap at that point, right? So, um you yeah, no, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that anytime you get into those big figures, it's significant. But I think, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the answer is then they just can't, they can't be a player for those guys. Or maybe Iserman, he does have a history of managing to convince guys to not take a, a ton of money. But usually that's been in-house guys who want to keep a core together. And, and so I think that is a different conversation uh, than, than if you're trying to lure a guy to you. Yeah, I mean, so just just for reference, if you're looking after 9 million defensemen, so we talked about Yossi signing that extension. I believe that kicks in next year. Um, but beyond that, Eric Carlson, Drew Doughty, and P.K. Subban are your three yeah. defensemen. That Those are all rough. Those, none of those and, age well. And none of those have aged well. And those guys, so Subban is 30, which is what Petrangelo is going to be. Carlson's 29, and Doughty's 29. So... That's 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 the thing that scares me. That you know, if you want to go give that guy nine million, now granted you're signing it at a different point in time where the the percentage cap hit is going to be a little bit better than when those guys um, signed it. But all that being said, I don't know that I, I I want to commit nine million over six years. See, this is why Prashant uh, Prashant helps me because I'm I'm just open wallet, and he says no, close <laughs> the wallet, close the wallet, get it together, Max. That's right, yeah. But I think it's good conversation nonetheless. If, if you're asking me to project what what I expect to be in place, I think you're looking at the Kaiser, Hronik, Nemeth, I agree, Sider, Chalowski, 
a, a blank spot for Ike's. I agree there will probably be some, whether it's an unrestricted free agent or a trade coming in. I wonder if they want if they won't keep Alex Biega around as the seventh D. He, he seems to be someone who can fit that role really nicely. He's he certainly works hard enough. He hasn't stood out to me as being especially problematic or anything on defense. He he could be a natural fit there. Um, as a seventh D, as someone who could come in when there are inevitable injuries. And then in Grand Rapids, I think you're looking at Lashoff, McElrath, or, you know, McElrath certainly, I think, has made a case to, to be part of that conversation, too, in Detroit. But Lashoff, McElrath, Hicketts, Lindstrom, McIsaac, and then a question mark. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have any problem keeping Alex Bieg around. I mean, again, you're going to be able to do it for a low-dollar low dollar contract. Uh, so he's exactly the kind of guy you want to be able to keep in that seventh defenseman spot, some guy who's willing to accept, you know, league minimum, you know, 1.025 million or whatever it goes up to next year uh, to, to stick around and be that 7D man. I mean, that's that's more than okay with me. Yep, absolutely. All right, uh, on to the next ones. We got some really good ones today. You guys you guys killed it. Um, okay, Bradley Kroshauer says, is it certain Detroit has the core with which it will next contend, or is it possible that core will have to come from the next two to three drafts, meaning contention is four to six years away? Yeah, that's a. If we're talking about Stanley Cup contention, then from my my viewpoint, I think you have pieces of the core, but you don't have that player that defines the core yet. I don't think Dylan Larkin is the player that defines the core. Like if you look at Pittsburgh's core, um, there were you had the elite player Sidney Crosby, you had another really good elite player in Evgeny Malkin. You had another really, really good player in Crystal Tang, and then you had some other pieces around there. I think what you have with Dylan Larkin and Anthony Manta right now are like the Chris Letang-type players. Um, I don't think they're the elite, elite player, and they're not the Evgeny Malkin of that player, but they're on that Chris Letang tier where they're really, really, really good. Um, and I think you've got that in Larkin, and you have that in Manta. Bertuzzi's certainly making a case to be in that tier, but what you don't have right now is you don't have the you don't have the Sidney Crosby, you don't have the Evgeny Malkin, you don't have the Jonathan Taze, you don't have the Patrick Kane, you don't have that truly elite player. Are there other ways to win in this league? Yes, you look at the way the Kings built. Andre Kopitar was an elite player uh, for a long time, but after him there was kind of more of a drop off and a consistent uh, skill level throughout the rest of that Kings lineup, and that's what led to them you know, get being very successful, getting a couple of cups. And I think that's another way to build the team. And so if you look at it from that standpoint, I still think you need that Andre Kopitar player, uh, but you have a lot of other pieces there. So with that being said, could you still contend in four to six years? Yes. And I think it all depends on how this year's draft lottery shakes out. Um, because if you land a guy like Alexi Lafreniere, a Quinton Byfield at one or two, and then you're able to find a way to sneak in another first round pick, uh, or your or one of your picks last year or multiple picks this year hit and kind of take that next step quickly, then I think you're in position to contend in the next four to six years. But if you don't hit in your top four this year, um, let's say the Wings go on some long winning streak and they end up not picking in the top four, they get jumped and they end up picking six, and maybe that pick doesn't work out, or they pick a guy who's projected to be a, a little bit further down the road, then I do think you are talking about different players being a part of the core um, as opposed to Larkin and Mantha because I think those guys are going to be where they're at probably until the age 32, 33. Uh, so that's really your window to contend with those guys before they start to slide out of there. 
Yeah, so an eight-year window is you know, pretty promising there. I think this goes back to a conversation we've had in the past about how to define a core and, and do cores have to be all of the same age and all that stuff. I'll say that I think if, if you take you know two players like Crosby and Malkin and swap them in for the Red Wings' two best players in Larkin and Mantha, um, this team's not as bad as they are. They're not where they are. So do they have the best players of a championship team? I, I, you'd be hard-pressed to say they do. And that doesn't mean that the, both of those guys can't get better. I think both of them are going to be absolutely essential players the next time the Red Wings are contenders, and it wouldn't stun me to see one of those two uh, win the con Smythe the next time the Red Wings win the Stanley Cup. But in terms of, like... Do they have the the quote unquote core in place? No, I think a lot of the key players uh, on the next Red Wings contender have have yet to enter Detroit at the very least. Mort Sider could well be one of those guys, and uh, whoever they pick in this draft and maybe next year's draft. But I think, uh, yeah, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to say that the guys who are who will be the best player on their next Cup team uh, are in Detroit right now. Yep, completely agree. All right, next one's from Hale. I love this one. With the Red Wings as bad as they are, he finds it uh, to be cathartic to have a team in the Western Conference to follow, not necessarily favor them, but to have interest in them winning. Is that bad fandom? No, I don't think uh, that's bad fandom whatsoever, and I don't think anyone should ever be policed for how they choose to be a fan of of whatever team they're watching. I mean, everyone watches sports for different reasons and, and has different reasons for watching the Red Wings and, and has different levels of interest in it, and there's no right or wrong way to be a fan. Um you know, one of the things that's been nice for me is I don't live in Detroit anymore, and so I, I still go to the Hurricanes games, and I watch them play, and I'll cheer when they win. But uh, when it comes down to Detroit playing, then I'm still always going to favor Detroit because that's the team I grew up with and, and watch. But, uh, no, I don't really agree with policing fandom in any sort of manner. I agree completely, and I'll go a step further and say I think it's really healthy to like more than one team. I think uh, it makes the whole league more fun, and I don't think you need to confine it just to one conference. So, I mean, when I was a little kid, I grew up in Grand Rapids, and I was a uh, Lions fan at a time when the Lions were, like, just could not buy a win. And I also had family in Terre Haute, Indiana, and so I started watching the Colts for a long time and became a Peyton Manning fan and Reggie Wayne and all that stuff. That was a whole whole lot of fun. But what it really does is it just gives you more reasons to watch hockey, and isn't that the whole point anyway? Yeah, I mean, you're a fan of the sport, um, you know, you're watching the team there as well, but, uh, yeah, there's no reason to police anybody's fandom. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. Lars asks, what's your all time favorite fictional and non hockey book? Fictional. Uh, let's see. I don't know that I've read a fictional book in a really long time, which kind of sucks. I probably haven't read one since I was forced to read one. I haven't, I have not read a fictional book since I was in school. Yeah, I'm going to go with that just because everything I've had to read as a part of residency and, and training was always non-fictional kind of motivational slash this is how you don't burn yourself out kind of books. So if I, I mean, like if you're having me reach all the way back, probably the last fictional series I read was the Harry Potter series and that was well, how about just non hockey? Just just take the non hockey component. Yeah, I mean non hockey. I so I was a Craig was nice enough. Uh, Craig Custons was nice enough to include me in his uh, top hundred books from people in hockey. And so the the book that I included in that was um, when when breath is I think it's when breath meets air. When breath is there, um, basically it's the story of this neurosurgeon in training. Um, who as he's in training and he's working as hard as he is and trying to uh, get through the neurosurgery training, he ends up developing cancer. And then it becomes a lot of his story about 
how to actually live your life, um, what to prioritize, what it means to go through all of that, what it's like going through that from his medical perspective, um, as well as then learning how to live for those, live for others, and, and live for his family. And so it's a really interesting journey. It's a really interesting book that I've, uh, that I really enjoyed. And I think it also helps with you know, me connecting with hockey as much as I do is this is my like outlet away. This is what prevents me from burning out, um, in, in medicine because it is such a mentally taxing field to, uh, do, to do what is done and do what needs to be done there. So I, that's always been a great book for me to kind of help me remind myself of why I'm disconnecting and throwing as much effort and time into hockey as I do. Well, medicine's hard. It's a little bit hard, you know, uh, there's a lot of fun and interesting decisions that need to be made on a daily basis with very little information sometimes, and it is not easy. Who could have guessed that? Um, I like baseball a lot, so way, way less <laughs> way less intelligent answer than Prashant is giving. I really loved Astro Ball, though, in light of the last month uh, revelations about the Astros and forced to uh, reconsider a little bit some of the some of that book a little bit maybe uh i'm really enjoying jeff passon's book the arm I'm, I'm a few chapters into that i think that's phenomenal and i just bought a book but i'm not gonna talk about it until i read it because i don't know if if uh if i want to if i want to shout it out until i've read it so yeah there's not a chapter in astro ball that talks about sign stealing not not that i can recall i mean i <laughs> i loved astro ball and I, I was texting you during reading astro ball if i remember i know <laughs> Because I was like, this is like these are things that hockey should totally steal. Number one, I I stand by that just as a as a categorical. Like, there's so many things in baseball that I think um, hockey can learn from. One of them being this is the thing I texted you about is they ran like regressions on their scouting reports like a few years after the fact to see what biases their scouts tended to have. Like, did they tend to be mostly correct or, or tend to slightly overrate uh, guys in one particular attribute? Like, like, did they just not know what fast looked like? Did they not know what a 60 runner looked like? Um, and then they ran a regression. They used that to adjust the eye test. And I thought that was brilliant. And I was like, they should do this in every single sport. But now who knows? Maybe they were just rigging, uh, maybe they were just rigging everything at every level all the time. Oh yeah, that's probably what it was. They probably stole signs at every level. Not even just sign stealing. Who knows? Who like at, at the point where you're blatantly sending the kind of emails that uh, I guess we should still say they reportedly sent. Yes. Uh, <laughs> like, what are you not trying to to cheat at at that point? Exactly. All right. Uh, last one is from my friend Rachel, who just had her birthday. Happy birthday, Rachel! She says, on average, how many wings do you eat for breakfast? I mean, I don't know the last time I've eaten a wing for breakfast, so I'll say... Uh, don't say that. That's, that's bad for branding. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's great for branding because if we actually get into like a normal sitting of eating wings, it's like I, I either eat 20 wings or I eat zero wings. There is no in-between. So that's why I usually don't do that for breakfast because 20 wings for breakfast is a bad way to start the day. That's fair. I have eaten wings for breakfast. Like I... I don't know when the last time was, but certainly, like, if I was in college and I woke up at noon uh, after, like, a night out or something, I, I think a wing is a really nice uh, it's a ni- nice way to start the day after after one of those. Yeah, see, like, this is the best uh, description of, like, Max and his relationship. So, basically, I'm up at, like, 4.30 in the morning to get ready to go to work. So, there's no way in hell I'm eating wings in any scenario in that. <laughs> but I'll usually, like, send Max some sort of text because, for whatever reason, my brain, as soon as I wake up in the morning, it turns on and it's hockey-related. And so... I send Max a text, and then I get to wait seven hours for Max to wake up and answer my text message 
Um, and by that time, I'm about two hours away from leaving work. And then I can actually go reasonably eat wings at that point in time. So maybe the 20 wings around your breakfast time would be a doable thing. Just to save a little bit of face here, I don't <laughs> always sleep until 11. But what <laughs> my routine is, I get up an hour before the team practices or skates or whatever because i'm usually up until like two or three or four if you guys look at some of the published times in my stories prashant can attest i've texted him before <laughs> at like 7 a.m as well but yeah my my rule is i sleep until the exact latest time i have to get up in order to be at, at the skate so when it's game day that's like nine when it's when it's not game day that is like 11 30 or 12 depending on the day it was 1 30 this week because they had a 3 p.m practice and you know what i was up till five writing i'm not gonna feel bad about it no, you shouldn't because, uh, you know, for, again, for people who don't know Max, there was literally a time where we watched a game. We podcasted an hour after the game. And so now we're talking, we're wrapping up the podcast probably about 1130, 1145. I'm going to sleep. Max writes two stories overnight, files them, and then goes to sleep at like 530 in the morning, which is just ridiculous. But yeah, it's very interesting. Very interesting dynamic. Text messages at 24-7 all the time. It, I hope this doesn't make you feel weird, but it, it actually kind of reminds me of like my dad who wakes up at like 4 a.m. So there, <laughs> there were, there were times like when, uh, when I was in college, like I'd be home over winter break and I would get home from being like out with my friends and uh, I'd get home at like, you know, 2.33 and he'd just be getting up and I'd just be getting in. And so we'd, we'd hang out and, and, and watch uh, TV for like an hour and then I'd go to bed. And that sometimes is how Prashant and I are when, when he's waking up and I haven't gone to bed yet and we could have a nice little conversation over text and then, uh, and then part ways. But my answer to the question is, it's like four or five because it's however many wings I have left over from the last time I ate them. I would never uh, – or I wouldn't say I shouldn't say I would never. I have never uh, like ordered wings for breakfast, but there have been times where I have leftover wings and uh, just sounds good for breakfast. Yeah. I mean that's a very reasonable uh, way to be. I mean I'm usually a cold pizza person, but this isn't called cold pizza for breakfast. No, but it could have been if, if we covered a it team called the, called the Detroit Cold Pizza. I mean, they do play in a pizza arena. That's just that's right. Oh, we could have done it. All right, that's going to do it for us. Uh, we'll be back at this in the middle of this week. Uh, you guys, if you want to listen to that episode, it'll be on The Athletic, so you can go to theathletic.com slash wings for breakfast, and we will talk to you then. <laughs>